us just pray for him. Lord, you would speak your word through him to us. You would help him uh, give your message to us. Help us to have open and ready hearts to listen to your word. Amen. Amen. Sometimes it can take a bit of a jolt to get something free. Gradually, pushing or pulling will do no good whatever. It can take a massive thwack to loosen and free that rusted up bolt or door that's stuck. And when I think of that, I'm reminded of a story which we read in school by Jack London, The Call of the Wild. There's a scene where the dog hero of the story, Buck, is involved in a bet between various gold prospectors in the Yukon, deep in the frozen wastes of Alaska. The betting begins with a 500-pound sledge, and the bets rise until John Thornton, Buck's owner, boasts that his dog can start a sledge with a 1,000 pounds weight on it. The bet, appropriately enough, is a thousand dollars. Of course, it's not as simple as that. For one thing, the sledge is frozen solid into the ice, so Buck must first break the runners free and then pull it for a hundred yards. Very soon, a crowd has gathered, but no one will take the bet, for no one believes it's possible, including John Thornton, who by now is a bit worried. There is silence as the dog takes up the traces, tightening them, and then he slackens them a few inches, and then Buck swings to the right, and with a sudden jerk, his 150 pounds is yanked back. But the sledge quivers, and the ice cracks just a little. Thornton gives another sharp command, and Buck repeats the maneuver, this time swinging sharply to the left. There is more cracking. And this time, the sled breaks free of the ice. And everyone holds their breath. Thornton gives the well-known command, mush. And Buck throws himself forward, pulling the traces tight. He pulls and pulls, his muscles straining, his chest low to the ground, his head forward and down. And the sledge sways and trembles and starts to creep forward. But slowly and surely, it moves and gains momentum. Straining and pulling at the start would have been no good. It needed those sudden shocks to break the runners free. And sometimes it's like that. A jolt is needed. And such a jolt is precisely what John the Baptist delivers this morning. A jolt to break frozen people free, frozen in their complacency, as we'll see. John is a prophet standing in a long line of Hebrew prophets right back through Malachi to Amos, Micah, and Isaiah. All of those prophets delivered a spiritual jolt to a people mired in complacency, complacency that is the real enemy of the spiritual life. Not doubt, not being hurt, not our questions, but complacency. And John the Baptist is exactly that kind of fiery, wide-eyed, bearded, cloaked figure out of our imaginations who brings a broadside to bear 
on any complacency we might have. A man who truly disturbs the comfortable. Listen to these words as John preaches, each one like a hammer blow on the anvil of our hearts. You brood of vipers trying to slither away and escape while a bit of water won't protect you. Is is that any way to greet these crowds who've come specially to see you, John? Well, these, of course, aren't just any crowds. They claim to be children of Abraham. Good, honest Jews, the very people of God. But what are they doing here? Presumably, they've come to be baptized, immersed in the River Jordan by John. As we're told, it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, you repent of your sins, and after being dunked, John, I presume, would pronounce forgiveness. But it looks like John is none too impressed. Indeed, it may be that many of these people are simply coming because it's the done thing. It's the popular thing to do. Get baptized by crazy John, who everyone agreed was definitely the genuine article. But for all that, John's spiritual x-ray vision detects a lack of true intent. For John, these people honor Abraham with their lips, but they are so far from him and his faith in their hearts. And he says says words that would have been offensive in the extreme. Don't you dare to say to yourselves, we are children of Abraham. Look at these stones. If God so wished he could make himself children of Abraham out of them, you're no better than cold stones, really. Your hearts are frozen solid. John's words are severe. He's in effect saying to these people who feel entitled, Abraham is their spiritual father after all. Don't look to your spiritual heritage. It won't help you. If you really were children of Abraham, you'd act like him. You'd have Abraham's faith. But John is definitely not saying you're not religious enough. He isn't saying you're just a few rituals short of friendship with God. He's taking the people to task because their faith has degraded to the point where it's become a matter of keeping up appearances. And coming out to hear this mighty prophet in the desert, well, sadly, that's become another appearance, and John will have none of it. And what about us? We might feel a million miles away from this fiery prophet and his outlandish insults to what might seem to us quite respectable religious folk. But I wonder if at times we don't think a little like those people. I go to church and I've been doing so for many years. I was born and brought up in a Christian family. We are pillars of this church or that church, wherever you're from this morning. Well, as with the Jewish people coming out to John, I hear that voice. Oh, really? Where's the fruit? The fruit that comes from a life lived with God. I'm on some rotors, I lead a house group, I preach, well, it's what I call preaching. I pray, more or less, I guess I read the Bible actually quite a, quite a fair amount. Isn't that enough? John, please tell me that's enough. But where's the fruit, I hear him asking. What can he mean? I repented all those years ago, didn't I? I said the sinner's prayer. Didn't that clinch it for me? But I'm slightly worried now because John's eyes are fixed on mine and I can hardly hold myself still. You say you've repented. Where's the evidence? 
produce fruit, something I can see. You know, you can imagine the people not being best pleased with John. How dare he? Insulting us, implying we're not of the true faith. He called me a snake. Who does he think he is? But John talks like this because he's speaking to complacent people. If he shouts, it's because the people are spiritually hard of hearing. If he uses dramatic and vivid language and paints lurid pictures of judgment, it's because the people are spiritually almost blind. John is telling them your so-called repentance, your turning to God is merely outward. There are a lot of leaves on your trees, yes, but little or no fruit. And John, in a sense, is just repeating the words of those prophets who came before him. What fruit is it that God requires? Religion? No. Mercy, justice, and humility, not complacently assuming you know him. Mercy, like the good Samaritan coming to the aid of that neighbor in need. Justice, treating people fairly and not taking advantage when you can. Humility, always ready to listen to others and not assume you already know. Make all the sacrifices you like, have all the religion you want, but without the heart of the thing, without a living relationship with God, they will be worthless. There's nothing wrong with being a child of Abraham, of course not, but don't take it for granted, John would say. You must turn to God with your whole life, not just make an outward show of it. Love, mercy, act justly. That's what God wants. Indeed, isn't that just what John suggests here is true repentance in these next verses from Luke? John's asked for the real thing, and the people ask the very reasonable question, what do we do then, John? They know it's not their beliefs that are at fault. They sense that true repentance is something that must be more than outward show, more than what happens in the mind. It must be a matter of the heart, an inward change that leads to a change of life. And it may be a surprise after John's fiery words that he now instructs instead of condemns. But his aim is not to make people feel bad. It's to help them to change. And so three times this question is posed and John answers with three pieces of instruction, each of which is actually a mighty jolt to the system. In each of these, he hits the big red button marked greed. And each one is aimed at getting that tendency of the human heart to put its fingers around something or someone, grip tight and say, mine, or my precious. Think of all those clothes hanging on rails in our wardrobes. Do I really need that? Well, I'll keep it just in case. What if it suddenly gets cold in the middle of summer? Yes, better keep that one. Those shoes go with that dress, that tie with that suit, and I need one for funerals and another for weddings. Or perhaps it's the freezer. Ever spend your life desperately trying to stuff another box, another piece of meat, another ba bag of vegetables into a bulging freezer drawer already cracking under the strain? John has some words for you and me. Give some of it away. Uh, indeed, he's not nearly that kind, actually. Give it all away until you only have what you need. But I need it all, you and I scream. We'll be left penniless in the streets, we cry, for such is our fear of letting go of things. 
such is their hold on us. But John is only applying the simple logic of love your neighbor as yourself. I have enough clothes, does my neighbor. I have enough food to eat, does my neighbor. Show mercy, John counsels, be a good neighbor. The tax collectors are also given advice. Don't take more than your fair share. Collect taxes if you must, but no more than you are legally allowed to do. Act justly, fairly. Don't abuse your position. Soldiers, well, be soldiers if you must, but don't use your position of authority and your strength and your weaponry to extort money out of people, to take advantage of them, to try and trip them up. Be content with what you have. And stop mumbling, you should see what Herod pays us. Yeah, but it's enough, isn't it? Enough for what you need. Indeed, that word enough almost summarizes John's advice by itself. Know when you have enough and be content with it. Give the rest away. And so John says, no hoarding, no skimming, no extorting, no bribery. These are all kinds of understood sins, sins that describe the way we understand the system to work, a system built on fear and greed. Well, John says, you must free yourself from that. But John doesn't actually advise the tax collectors and and soldiers to give up their professions. He doesn't say they must come apart in order to live super holy lives. It's in the daily round. That's where they need to show the fruits of repentance and the difference in the way they navigate the system. Don't be greedy. Side with the needy. You don't need graft and corruption. God will make sure you have enough, enough for your needs but probably not your wants. Now, Jesus himself memorably summarized the law of neighbor love, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, and this summarizes the law and the prophets. If you had no clothing, what would you want? You'd want someone to give you some. That's what that means. That summarizes the whole of the law and the prophets, indeed the whole of John's message. If someone is collecting your taxes, what do you want? You want them to collect only what they should, to treat you fairly. So, Mr. or Mrs. Tax Collector, you do the same. If a soldier approaches you, what do you want them to do? To treat you respectfully and not use their position to extort money from you to supplement their wages. So, Mr. Soldier, you do the same. But having said all that, having received these jolts from John, we are reminded by John himself that he's only the sideshow. The one coming after him is the main attraction. Another prophet in the great tradition which now includes John the Baptist, this is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's not just a step up, but on another kind of level altogether, a prophet delivering his own shocks to the system, indeed, who hammers home in much of his teaching those two great commandments to love God and love your neighbor. Echoing also John's own watchword, repent, turn around. Don't just mumble a sorry or feel bad, and don't give one of those faux apologies full of ifs, if I have done wrong. If I have caused offense, then, only then, I'm sorry. 
Remove the if. I have done wrong. I have caused offence. I have hurt you, and I'm sorry. You might say, take this to Downing Street. The politicians need to hear this. But John didn't say this to politicians, but to ordinary Joes, soldiers, tax collectors, many of them good religious people. No, if we're tired of the games they play in Westminster, I suspect John would advise us to spend a little time in self-examination. Well, this is Advent after all, a time for searching questions. Am I like this crowd playing games with God? Have I really turned my back on evil? Is there some work for that axe and that fire that John mentions in my life? But Jesus didn't just come to repeat John's fiery call to repentance. He comes with something more. For John could only offer water, a washing, but Jesus offers a baptism that is at once greater and deeper of the Holy Spirit and of fire. Now John uses this picture here of the threshing floor because in those days this is how the wheat was processed by fire to dry it and then the wheat is separated from the chaff by throwing it up into the air with a fork and letting the wind blow the chaff away so the weightier kernels fall to the ground ready to be used. And so John points them to the one who brings this wind and fire, the spiritual power to live this life of mercy and justice and the purifying fire which burns up all that as the hymn has it is not holy or is not true. The wind comes and fans into flame all that loves God and mercy and justice. The fire burns up all that does not, and then the wind blows those ashes away. John offers us, though, not just sobering statements like that, but an, inv an invitation. An invitation that we would wake up and let these searing words burrow down into the deepest chambers of our hearts and an invitation to follow John's gaze as he looks away from himself and points to Jesus Christ, the one who, born in humility, walked the paths of mercy and justice for us and offers us his very own spirit to live by and a fire which can warm our frozen hearts into life. Perhaps this morning you sense you've been a bit complacent, a bit like that sledge frozen in the ice and your heart feels cold towards God, take time to think on those words of John's, to let them shake you, jolt you, break you free. John's words are not meant to bring condemnation in the end for their words of grace. Oh, they don't sound like that to be sure, but they are. They are words of grace that meet you where you are but as words from the heart of the living God, they will not leave you there. The wind and the fire can break you loose. Sometimes we all need a jolt, but it's a jolt that as it brings us face to face with the truth, sets us free. Amen to that. Let us pray. Lord, we pray you would, through these words of John, prepare our hearts to receive Jesus afresh this Christmas. May we be ready to listen and then to go out and love mercy, act justly, and walk humbly with our God. Amen.